Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, turn to James, and Yaakov's letter is really a letter about faith and how faith is to be implemented in real-life circumstances and situations. When we think about faith, we're talking about that which is characterized by a trust, a reliance upon, a clinging to. At least that's how the Amplified Bible, you know, sort of expounds on this word faith. But Paul also writes about faith, and in Romans chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 21, speaking, or verse 20, speaking about Abraham, Paul writes, yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. The promise about which he is speaking is the promise that God would multiply his descendants as the stars in heaven. And so he told Abraham, that is the Lord told Abraham, recorded in Genesis chapter 15, that if you can count the stars, so shall I multiply your descendants. Keep in mind, Abraham had no children at this point. Isaac is not born for another two or three chapters. This is chapter 15. And what Paul is saying and what Moses writes is that Abraham believed God, he trusted in God, he clung to the promise that God had made because he had an understanding about the character of God. And that belief, that trust, the Lord credited to him, accounted to him, put on the ledger for him as righteousness before God. That is right standing before God. In other words, it was Abraham's faith in God and in his promise that resulted in Abraham being seen by God as righteous. It wasn't his works or his activities. It was merely his trust in God, and God then credited righteous standing before him, before himself. So Abraham's sense of standing before God, declared righteous, free of any guilt, was the result of his belief in God and in his trust in God. It was not something he earned, something he gained, but rather something he received by simply trusting in the Lord. Now, when Paul writes about this, he says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief. He never doubted what God had promised him. And even later, at the end of Abraham's life, when Abraham is tested by God and 
commanded by God to offer up his son as a burnt offering, he did not waver in unbelief. And we know he didn't waver in unbelief because he told his servants that he and his son would go up the mountain to worship the Lord and then we will return to you. So somehow Abraham understood that even though he was to offer his son as a burnt offering, which would have necessitated his death, he also knew at the same time that somehow, in some way, in God's providence, that both he and his son would return. Now, we know later, after the event, what God had done. He had interrupted the process, sent the angel of the Lord to stay Abraham's hand. But when we look in the Brit Hadashah, the writer to the Jewish believers tells us he believed that God would have raised him from the dead. In other words, Abraham was fully committed to offering up his son as a burnt offering and believed that God would raise him from the dead. He understood, or at least he believed, that his son was already dead because he was going to follow through with the command that God had given him. And so Paul says he did not waver in unbelief. He never ceased from doing what God had told him. Neither did he cease in believing that he and his son would return to his servants. And so he goes on to say he did not waver regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith, which suggests to us that the more one believes, the more one is strengthened in his faith in God. That's not to say we're to believe what is not true. Someone's diagnosed with cancer and we pray that that individual might be healed. We're not told to believe that the person no longer has cancer. We're to trust that God is going to bring us through this one way or another, but we may not know how. It may not result in healing. It may result in our death, but being brought into the very presence of God. The point is we're to trust God with his sovereign grace, and not dictate to God what we would desire. And so Paul says the more that Abraham believed God, trusted God, resigned himself to what God had told him, it says that his faith became stronger. And as a result, and this is what's so cool, it says by his faith, he then gave glory to God. The more we believe him, the more we trust him, the more we rely upon him, the more we cling to him, the greater the glory we give to God, is what Paul is saying. Now, James and, or Yaakov is saying something very similar here. Now, we didn't look at this passage, but let me just remind ourselves that the book of Yaakov is about faith and how faith is to be exhibited in very practical, everyday life. We said faith in action, but what we mean by that is trusting in God in the crucible of our lives. When Yaakov begins his letter to the Jewish believers, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations, he speaks to the issue of trials and tribulations. And so in the very opening salvo of his letter, he says, genuine faith, true faith, is going to stand strong in the face of trials and tribulations. He tells us in verses 2 through 4 or so of chapter 1, that first of all, 
We're to remember the purpose for these trials. And if we remember the purpose for these trials, we can be strengthened in our faith. The purpose is for God to bring about something good in our lives. The good thing that he wants to bring about in our lives is our hooper menowing, our ability to stand firm, to hyperly stand, to stand strong with great energy in the midst of our trials. The good thing that God will bring about The purpose for which the trial has been permitted is so that God can produce something in us that he otherwise could not produce. And that thing he wants to produce is a stick-to-itiveness of faith and trust in God, a standing firm in the midst of these trials and tribulations that may come our way. The second thing he tells us in this regard is not only that we have this good purpose, but God will make provision. And so he tells us that when we encounter the trial, we should ask God. Remember, everything is about God. The trial is meant to be something good God would work in our lives. It's about God and his relationship to us. The way to handle the trial is to ask God for help. And what God will do in helping us is to provide us with wisdom in order to evaluate the trial and to deal with it. He tells us not only this, but we should have the right perspective when we encounter these trials because the trials will hit both rich and poor. The poor may appear to think that they have a greater trial because they have less resources. But he tells them that, no, in reality, the wealthy person has a greater trial. And the greater trial is to deal with his substance responsibly. But what he tells them, again, is to place their faith and trust and attitude toward God. So what does he tell the, the uh, poorer person? They should rejoice and take pride in the grace of glory. That the perspective they should have should be one in which they are looking not just to the immediate circumstance, but to look to the future because their circumstances are temporary and one day they will experience the great glory that they have been graced to receive. They may be lowly in status now, but they will be raised to great height, high position is what he says in verse 9, when they stand before the Lord. So they are to take pride in their grace of glory. On the other hand, the wealthier person should also be mindful to encounter the trial that he may have because of much as unto the Lord. And the perspective that person ought to have, he tells us, is to take pride in the glory of grace. That despite their elevated status in this life, God was able to humble them and to make them lowly so as to call upon God to save them. The point is the wealthy person may feel they never have a need and therefore will not turn to the Lord. That's why Messiah said it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So if you're wealthy, he says, take pride in the glory of grace that has been given to you, a grace that has humbled you so that you would find God. And the poorer person is to take pride in the glory, uh, the grace of glory that will yet be theirs when they stand before God. 
So he's told us, God is pivotal in all that we encounter. Therefore, trust him because he has a good purpose to bring about in our lives through the trials. Look to God to endure the trial and to deal with the trial because he will give wisdom. Keep a proper perspective of what God has done for you by either elevating you or lowering you so that you might know him. And therefore, we will be blessed and receive his promises. He then goes on to say, and to take heed, because there is the potential to sin in the midst of trials. All trials are a temptation. And the temptation on the part of the evil one is to lure us to sin. God, on the other hand, his purpose is to demonstrate his grace in your life and the faith that he is developing in your life to trust him despite the trial that is faced. And so he tells us in verses 13 through 15 that every trial is a temptation. And the temptation might be to sin by denying the Lord who will bring you through that trial. And then lastly, he tells us in the section we looked at last week, is that God has a purpose in this trial, which is to provide us with the empowerment to endure it. And he tells us two things about the power God has given to us in order to endure the trial. Number one, he's given us the power to see things more clearly that we should focus on God and not the good things he gives us. And lastly, he tells us he has given us a new birth. And therefore, we have been born again and empowered by him to walk in his ways. Everything focuses our attention on God, what he is doing and what he's provided. Now look at verse 19. I'd like to just share with you the second point that he's going to make. And that is whereas faith is to be related or connected to our trials in verses 19 through 27 as we conclude chapter 1. He talks about faith and the word of God. So he says in verse 19, my dear brothers, take note of this. Take special attention to this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now Yaakov wants to draw attention to the work of the word in our lives and the necessity to place our faith and trust upon it. There are three things he's going to tell us. So let's take a look at them in verses 19 through 21. He's going to speak about the need to accept the word. 
In verses 22 through 25, he's going to talk about the need to do the word. And then in verses 26 through 27, he's going to talk about living out the word. Now, I want to start at the back end for a moment. What, Paul, what Yaakov is addressing is the word of God. Before we look at the back end, look at verse 18. This is how he slides into the focus on the word. He says in verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He's introduced to us the word of truth. And now throughout chapter, verses 19 through 27, he wants to speak about this word of truth. The word of truth in verse 18 is the revelation of the character and nature of God. It's the revelation of the grace of God. The, the word of truth is the truth of the good news. That God has brought Messiah into the world. He has suffered and died. He's risen again. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And his empowerment is available to us. That's the word of truth that he's referring to. It is embodied in the entirety of the word of God. Now keep in mind, Yaakov is writing about 45 A.D. That's about 10 years or so, 12 years, after the death of Yeshua. His book is probably the first of the Brit Hadashah writings to exist. His is probably the earliest letter that we've received. Now, we do have some parchment of the Gospel of Mark that's dated around 33-35. But in terms of the letters that we have, this is probably the earliest one that we have. And it makes sense. Because Yaakov was the pastor of the early believers in Jerusalem. And no doubt he wanted to get a word out to his flock and to the rest of the Jewish people with respect to who Messiah is and how to live a life worthy of the name of God as the chosen people. It makes sense that he would be writing in this fashion. And he wants to draw the attention of his readers to the word of truth which will make all the difference in the world for them. He's going to tell them we need to be receptive to it. He's going to tell them that we need to do it. And in doing it, he tells us, we will live it out. Now look at the back end just for a moment. We oftentimes are told that what we are engaged in is not a religion, but a relationship. And I don't deny the reality of this, but we ought not to be so circumspect. We do have a religion. That word is used three times here by Yaakov. He says, if anyone considers himself religious, he says his religion is worthless if he is not taking a tight rein on his tongue. And in verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts. So there's nothing wrong with the word religion just so long as we understand what it relates to. He's concerned that our relationship with God is lived out in a genuine fashion in the real world. And in these two verses, he tells us basically two things that characterize genuine relationship with God or a genuine religion of God, if you want to call it that. What he tells us is, first of all, that there ought to be a practical helpfulness. Look at what he says in verse 27. The kind of religion that our Father accepts as being pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This word, to look after, means to consider with such a degree that you are desirous of doing something about it. Let me show you another place where this is found. Look at Acts chapter 15. And in chapter 15, 
Verse 21, I think it is. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 15. When the assembly is discussing whether or not non-Jews can come to faith in Messiah without circumcision, various evidences and testimony is presented. James is going to make the final decision, but look what we're told in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Verse 13, when they finished, Yaakov spoke up. And here's his decisive decision regarding what they should do about this concern. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, of course, that's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern. That's the same word that is used by Yaakov to speak about to look after, in my translation, orphans and widows. Here it says, God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. In other words, Yaakov, using the same word he uses in his letter to speak of the deep concern, the genuine concern that God had for the Gentiles, that he did something about that concern. What was his concern? That they would be lost. That somehow they would not have a means of salvation. God took such concern and awareness of the Gentiles' plight without God that he did something about it. He sent Paul and Barnabas to tell them the good news. They received the good news and they experienced salvation. Yaakov is now saying in chapter 1 verse 27, genuine religion is seen in practical helpfulness. A helpfulness that looks at the world with a deep concern to make a difference where there is a great and genuine need. Now, James is not saying every person ought to become poor by helping everyone else be, uh, meet their needs. He's not saying every time you see a need on the street, you are obligated to do something about it. What he tells us is that we are obligated to look after orphans and widows. So what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that we ought to look only at orphans and widows. He's using them as an example, two examples. And the example of orphans and widows is that these are people who have a genuine need and have no recourse but to rely upon someone else because orphans had no families. And as orphans, especially in the first century, they were utterly dependent upon the kindness and compassion of others who they're not even related to. On the other hand, widows, again, they have lost any form of support. And so what he's telling us by way of example is where there is a genuine need and where that genuine need necessitates the help of others, we're to be there for them. And genuine faith, genuine religion, a genuine relationship with God will be on the lookout with a deep concern and willingness to help where there's a genuine need where one individual uh, cannot support himself or is in need of the help of others. And the second thing he tells us is not only is it characterized by a practical helpfulness, it's it's manifested by a practical holiness. Look what he says after. He says they're to look after the widows and orphans and 
to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so a genuine faith, a lived out faith, a manifested faith is going to be one where there is a love for neighbor and a devotion to God so that one keeps himself from being polluted from the world. There is a desire for holiness. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, without such holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, it's not the holiness that enables us to see the Lord. It's the holiness that reveals we're going to see the Lord because of the work that God is doing in us. And if God is doing a work in us, then there ought to be that desire to keep oneself from being polluted and thereby to live a life that is holy before the Lord. Every Shabbat, we speak about the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. We're to be reminded not only of God's own holiness, but the holiness he wants to bring about in our own lives. James makes this point clear. So that's the result. That's what we're after. We're after a helpfulness and a holiness. How do we get there? Look back at verse 19. He speaks to the brethren. He speaks to the believers. And he tells us that we have already been born again through the word of truth. Now, this idea of being born again by the word of truth is not unique to James. If you look at Peter, chapter 1 Peter, next book, and you look at chapter 1, I believe it's verse 23 or so. Indeed it is. He says in verse 22, Now that you have, been pure, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, that's sort of what Yaakov just told us, Concern for orphans and widows, sincere love, love for one another deeply from the heart. Look at this, verse 23. Why is it possible for us to love like that deeply from the heart and be concerned with the needs of others who have such needs and a desire for holiness? Because in verse 23, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So the word of God has been instrumental in our being born again. In fact, if you look back at Yaakov in chapter 1, he tells us to humbly accept the word planted in you. Now this word planted is a unique word. It only occurs here in the entire Brit HaDashah. And what it refers to is that which naturally germinates within the heart of an individual. He's using an analogy about a seed that's planted in the ground. It's implanted and it grows. In other words, what he's telling us, and this is quite remarkable, I think, is that when we've been born again, we were born again by the very manifestation of the word of God germinating in our hearts. In other words, it's not something we've acquired. It's something that becomes naturally inbred into us. That's what James is telling us. We've been born again. We're naturally connected to God. We're naturally connected to God's word. This whole idea of being born is meant to reveal this idea. James tells us here, he chose to, verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Peter just told us we were born again not by perishable seed, but by an imperishable seed. Yeshua told us that we were born again by the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God. John tells us 
in, in his first letter. This is really quite interesting to take note of, but in chapter 5, he says, everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. He says in verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. He says in verse 18, we know that anyone born of God, we have been born of God. When you're born of a person, you have a natural inbred connection to that person. Their DNA is now in you. It defines you. It sort of describes you. It in a way, characterizes you. The certain personality traits are even reflective of the DNA. Our habits, our styles, the way we move, the things we do, not because we've acquired it, not because we've practiced it, not because we've somehow taken it and then by skill and hard work we do it. It's because there's something naturally inbred into the inner fiber of our being, which is the Word of God. So if there is anything that would prove, if I could say that, and this may be a little extreme, but if there's anything that would prove a person is born again, I always used to say we can never be certain who's a believer and who isn't. And I still believe that. We never can be certain. We can hear the testimony of people, but we don't know what goes on in a person's heart, right? So we can never really be the judge of where a person stands. We can encourage one another in one's work. That's why Peter will say, make your calling and election sure. That's what each one of us needs to do. But if there is one test that might reveal more certainly that a person is born again, it has to do with their reaction to the word of God. If it is true that we've been born again by the implanting of the Word of God, there ought to be something natural about within us that makes the Word of God attractive to us. In other words, a person can understand the Word of God and not be a believer, but he cannot know the Word of God and be a believer. A person can believe things, but he cannot necessarily know things are such. In other words, unless you believe in God, and I think it was Dennis Prager in this video and lesson that we're doing on the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, according to the Jewish tradition, or Jewish counting, I should say, is to know God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of bondage. That's the first commandment, know God. Why is it important to know God? Because if you don't know God, you can believe things, but you can't know things. You might believe murder is wrong, but that's just your opinion. The Nazis believed it was right to kill Jews. You may not believe that. But what makes the Nazis wrong about that? Just that you don't like Jews being killed? I mean, what determines they are wrong? Unless you just believe that they're wrong. But that's your opinion. The only way you can know something is wrong is if there is a higher authority to whom we are all accountable. And therefore, the first commandment is to know the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because out, without his knowledge, none of us can know anything. We can only believe things we want to believe. When the word of God is implanted in our lives, there's a natural attraction to its truth. We may not always understand it all, but we will be attracted to it. 
We will long for it. As a deer longs for the brook, so does my heart long for you. There's a desire for the Word. It doesn't mean 24-7, but it does mean that the Word of God is important to us. Not merely because of what it can tell us, but because inside something goes off that says, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. This is spectacular. This is unbelievable. There's something that goes off, not just by way of information. Look, one of the things I love is the Civil War. I go up and down with it. You know, I'm not always into it, but I've read countless books on the Civil War. I've had all the Time Life series. I've poured over the maps of where the Confederate troops and where the Union troops and why this happened and why that happened because I'm just so interested in it. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about what interests you. There are a lot of things that interest all of us. But when the word of God is implanted in our soul, we cannot do without it. It's not just something we prefer. It's something we need. It's not just something we like. It's something that's a necessity. It becomes food for our existence. That's why when Yeshua is tempted of the evil one, every time he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Why? Because the word of God was food for his life. That's why when Jeremiah is told to take the word of God, he eats it. At first it's bitter, but then it becomes sweet. It's food for his life. That's what Yaakov is saying. He's telling us that we need to be receptive to God's word, and we will be if we are born again because we've been born of the word of God. And therefore, there's a natural tendency toward it. But he tells us here that we need to humbly accept it. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. If you look at verse 19, and when I've taught on this before, I've often, or appealed to this passage, I've oftentimes looked at this passage to teach about anger. But you know, this passage is not about anger. How often I've said to my students, up, be quick to listen and slow to speak. How often we've said that to one another when we've tried to get a point in and we're being it up, doesn't James say? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. But that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about the Word of God. Remember what he said in verse 18. We are born through the Word of God. And then in verse 21, get rid of all moral filth and evil that prevents us from humbly accepting the Word. And so what is it that gets in the way of our humble acceptance of the Word? He tells us what the problem is. We're quick to speak rather than to listen to the word. In other words, we're quick to critique the word. We're quick to criticize the word. We're quick to raise issues about the word rather than being quick to listen to the word and allow it to speak to our hearts rather than to scrutinize how can this possibly be. There's a place to resolve things in the Scripture. But that's not what Yaakov is talking about. If the Word of God is implanted in your heart, your quickness ought to be to listen to it. Your quickness ought to be to receive it, to embrace it, and to desire it. What he tells us is we should be slow to speak out against it, quick to speak, to listen to it, and thereby not to be angry with God 
when things go awry and challenges come into our lives. And here's the interesting thing. He's contrasting anger with humble acceptance. Why? Because the root of anger is ultimately the opposite of humility. What's the opposite of humility? It's pride. Why do we get angry? Because we're proud. You don't get my argument. And we interrupt each other to make sure that we clarify what we're saying. What's the real issue? The real issue is we're prideful about what it is we believe something ought to be. And we're not humble about thinking there may be an alternative. There may be other ways of thinking about things. In fact, that has often been the case among some of the early writers of Scripture, or I should say of commentaries and pastors as they've dealt with this passage. They've seen the propensity of believers, of their flock, to believe things, and in believing certain things, their unwillingness to consider other ideas that may be a germane or that may come up. There's an arrogance when we're not willing to listen to God's word and to perceive and to think about things more fully. What he's telling us here is that the reason why we don't humbly accept the word, embrace it as we should, is because there's a pride that goes off in us and thereby we avoid simply humbly and coming before God, realizing we don't have all the answers, and accepting his word in order to enable us to become carers of others as well as a more holy people. So he tells us we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, because what is God after? Look what he says in verse 20. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. What is this righteous life? It's what he describes for us in verses 26 and 27 as true religion. A righteous life is the religion that God our Father accepts. That's what he wants to get in and through us. Righteous life. And what does that life look like? It looks like a life that has a practical concern for the needs of others, and is desirous of attaining a life of holiness. If we are prideful and arrogant toward God and his word, it will not produce in us the result that God is after, a righteous life that is pleasing before him. So you ask, okay, how do I go about humbly accepting the word? And look at verses 22 through 25. He tells us the first thing we need to do is humbly accept it, to humbly embrace it, to humbly come around it, and to bow before it. And naturally, it should become a natural thing because it is implanted and it's germinating in our souls. And I know that's true for us. We're just drawn to it. And now we need to humble ourselves before it and allow the Spirit of God to allow the truths to be lived out through us. So how do we do this? In verse 22 through 25, he tells us. He says, we can't merely listen to the word. Everything's about the word, which is another way of saying we can't merely study the word. We can't merely be knowledgeable about the word. 
And you have to understand, in some sense, it's hard for me to say these words because I just love to scrutinize the word, you know. I love to look at the, the, word, the original words and to see what the distinctive nuances are conveyed by it. I'm, I'm delighted to just study the word. I'm delighted to just listen to the word, you know. Um, but he tells us that's not enough to just listen to the word, to scrutinize the word, to penetrate into understanding. And he says, if you limit yourself to that, you're deceiving yourself. You're thinking that that's all God's intention is, is to give information. But what he says is, no, you can't just listen to the word. You also have to do the word. Now, look how he illustrates this. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, in the ancient world, most people, it's hard to imagine in our day and age, especially here in Los Angeles, but it's hard to imagine that people never really knew what they looked like. They didn't have mirrors back then. At least not like we did. You know, the glass mirrors that we have, if I'm not mistaken, I remember studying this once before, but if I'm not mistaken, they were, dis- they were developed in like the 18th, 17th centuries. Up to that point, you did not have glass mirrors. What you had was polished metal mirrors. Brass was typical. Bronze, bronze, maybe not brass. Bronze was typical. Silver and gold. So they polished that thing in order to get the best image of oneself that you could get, but it was always weird, you know. I guess the only other way would be to kind of look into water, but every time you, you know, things fall out of place. You can never really see what you look like, you know, kind of fixing your hair there. You know, it's just never, you can never see yourself for who you really are. So how did you look? You had to look intently. You had to, like, really work at it. By the way, this, this uh, word, uh, the word to, um, in verse 28, but the man who looks intently, the word intently is the same word that's used of Peter and John when they get to the tomb and they stoop down to look intently in the tomb to see where's Messiah's body. They were scrutinizing and thinking clearly. They're saying here, that the person who just listens to the word but doesn't do it, it's like, he, like a person that looks at his face in the mirror, then he puts it down, he goes off, and he forgets what he saw. The idea of looking at oneself is not just the external images, but he means to convey, doesn't take note of the kind of person he really is. By the way, that's what is conveyed in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue... What he's talking about is a tight rein on your life. The tongue speaks what is in the inner recesses of the soul. So keeping a tight rein on your tongue doesn't just mean I'm not going to say things. It means to have a tight rein on your life so that your character is different. And by the way, that's what this whole thing is about, right? Humbly accepting humility is a character trait. And so the whole issue that Yaakov is getting at is not external disciplines, but an internal transformation of character that comes by the implanted word. But the only way that character will change as as quickly as we would like, 
or the only way that character will change so that a beautiful flower emerges is the degree to which we humbly accept ourselves before it and do what it says. And then people will see us caring for others and having a holy life, and there's the flower. That's the life that is exuded. But he tells us we need to look intently at the mirror. Now, here's the problem. He said that the person that doesn't forgets. Now, I have to tell you, this is a problem for older people. They don't have to be much older because, you know, I'm like forgetting things all the time. I mean, I can't believe it. I would be looking for my phone. Where did I put my phone? Mary Lou will tell you how often. It's like, my keys, right? Where are my keys? You know, it's like there's somewhere. And there's certain places I look, and they're supposed to be there, and they never are. And I said, how did I get that there? You know? And it's just, it can be very discouraging. So what do you do? You can do a couple of things. You can write down where you left whatever it was so that you can go back to the place where you found it. You know what James is telling us? He says, look, when you go on with your life, carry the mirror with you. He's telling them the problem of the first guy is he puts the mirror down, he walks away from it, and he forgets what he looked like. Well, look, we're going to always forget what we're supposed to be. That's why we need to always have the Word of God in our lives. That's what he's telling us. Don't put the Word down and walk away from it. Bring the Word with you. It's implanted in you. Take it with you. The issue here is not about sort of picking yourself up up from your bootstraps, and I will this. It's a matter of the natural inclination of the heart because the Word of God is implanted in our inner being. That's the way people are doing the things they're doing. You know, when you look at a guy like Stephen who's being stoned, does he just stand up and say, I'm I'm just going to do this, I'm going to hang in there, it's willpower. No, he has the Word of God implanted on his soul, and he cannot say anything less than, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Do you think he said those things? Because he was just, I'm saying these things. <laughs> you know, I don't care what they do, I'm just doing it. No, he said that as a natural impulse of the life of God that was in him. And therefore, he was naturally disposed to give praise to God. He says in verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law, by the way, these are all references to the word of God, the perfect law that gives freedom. It's gonna, he's going to make reference to it as the royal law. It's the word of God he's talking about. But look what he says, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed. We need to take the mirror with us. We need to take the word of God with us. We need to continually, constantly, it's in the present tense. We're never to stop gazing at the word, which reveals who we are as children of God and yet redeemed of God. I suppose, and just in in closing, we might say, look, we're born of the word of God. And we might say, then how come I'm not so different? How come there hasn't been such dramatic, supernatural change? Well, part of the reason is that we don't see things in proper perspective. But the reality is this. 
We had been dead in trespasses and sins, and indeed we are sinners even at present, but we are also truly redeemed. We're truly redeemed. We may not be all that we ourselves would like to be or all that God will have us to be, but we are his presently. And by continuing to look into his word so as to continually take inventory of what God is doing, we will find ourselves, as he say, we will be blessed in what we do. Faith more often than not in Scripture, is an action word. It's a verb. We oftentimes speak of the faith as a noun. We believe the faith. But in the Bible, it's mainly a verb, something we do, we trust in, cling to, rely upon, and cast all of our trust to. He's telling us that as individuals that God has worked in our lives, as individuals in whom God has taken up residence, When trials come, we can trust him, and the transformation will be seen. He's telling us the weight of that transformation is the word of God, which is implanted, embedded in our innermost being. Thereby, humble yourself before it, be in it always, continually, so that we do what's there. And as we do what's there, Our life will exhibit the quality of life that God intends for us. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we are thankful for your goodness and your kindness. You are God of grace and mercy. And so, Lord, you have dispensed your word, not only to us for us to observe, to read, to study, to look at, But you have shed it abroad in our hearts. You have implanted it, embedded it into the very fabric of our lives. It has become and is becoming our DNA. And so we are drawn to it. We are attracted to it if we truly know you. And so, Father, as we are attracted to it, may we come before it with all humility, not critiquing, not complaining, and not disappointed by what we read. But, Father, but may we bow ourselves reverently before you and allow your word to speak openly convincingly and convictingly to our hearts. May we thereby take the word with us. May we be in it regularly. May we participate in a life group in which we discuss it together. May we come as often as we can to service as we hear it presented to us. And may you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive its truth in all of its facets. And then, Father, may we do it so that our life would be lived helpfully toward others, loving our neighbor as ourself, and that our life would be lived wholly, that we would be a praise to your name 
And like our Messiah, we would be conformed more and more to his image. We praise you, our Lord, for what you are doing and have done for us in this regard. We pray your help as we go forward in our life of faith and trust. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll receive the benediction. And then we'll sing Shabbat Shalom. Right? Okay. Blessings, blessings, blessings on you guys. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavalecha v'chunecha Yisa'a Adonai panavalecha V'yasem lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his glory, his majesty upon you. And may he grant you his peace that passes all understanding. For we ask in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, Mishichenu, our Messiah, Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.